regulations are really only put into effect after something terrible has happened. That's correct. If that's the case for AI, and we're only putting regulations after something terrible has happened, it may be too late to actually put the regulations in place. The AI may be in control at that point. Wednesday, April 19th, 2023, and welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast devoted to economic, societal, political, and geopolitical concerns. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a Hoover Distinguished Policy Fellow. I'll be your moderator today, joined by our full complement of Goodfellows. That would include the economist John Cochran, the geostrategist, Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster, and the historian Neil Ferguson. Neil, I mentioned you last, not out of spite, but because I want to wish you a belated happy birthday, my friend. Thank you very much indeed. I have now entered my 60th year. This is troubling. Uh, the good news, of, according to uh, Wikipedia, you're not 60 years old. But I have entered my 60th year. I will be 60 in 364 days. Okay. But when uh, you turn 59, you should be honest with yourself. You are now in your 60th year. Well, let's see. I think we have uh, three people on this broadcast who've already passed that milestone, so we're giving you plenty of advice on what to do when the uh, odometer passes zero. Uh, two topics we're going to explore today. We want to uh, do a, a segment on the uh, recent leak of Pentagon intelligence, the significance thereof. But first, we're going to talk about artificial intelligence, more and more a staple in the daily news topic we haven't really addressed at length since we had Tyler Cowan on the show last November. Uh, I'm looking forward to this because I find it to be a fascinating topic, but also because I think that John and Neil do not necessarily see eye to eye on all things AI. That means HR, that you get to play the role of peacemaker or troublemaker, depending on how much trouble you want to foment here. Uh, Neil, let's begin by uh, referencing the very terrific column you wrote recently for Bloomberg, the very catchy headline, the aliens have landed and we created them. Um, to those of you uh, watching or listening to this broadcast, if you haven't already, please track down this column and read it. It's a very insightful look into the pros and cons of so-called large language model AI produced by the likes of ChatGPT. Neil, this passage caught my eye. Quote, how might AI office, not by producing Schwarzenegger-like killer androids, but merely by using its power to mimic us in order to drive us individually insane and collectively into civil war? Sounds like what you're suggesting here, Neil, isn't so much the end of mankind, but a very slow strangulation of culture courtesy of this technology. Well, let me put my uh, cards on the table. I, I'm with Elon Musk on this. I think this is a far more dangerous uh, technological leap forward uh, than is generally realized. That, that's not because I'm a Luddite, uh, because there are clearly things that artificial intelligence can do that are great. And I'll give the example that got much less coverage than ChatGPT, DeepMind's AlphaFold, uh, which is able to determine the structures of proteins uh, in ways that we simply couldn't do using our own limited brains. Mm -hmm. The thing that worries me is not that. The thing that worries me is a particular form of artificial intelligence, which is the large language model. And these large language models are getting larger and more powerful at a truly astonishing rate. If you thought chat GPT was amazing, and maybe you played with it as I did, when you get to play with GPT-4, which I haven't yet, but I know people who have, you are going to be even more astonished. Uh, why? Because it can mimic uh, us. It can mimic human intelligence with uncanny precision. Uh, my friend Reid Hoffman is a big fan of this. Indeed, he's a backer of OpenAI, which is the company, formerly the nonprofit, behind uh, GPT-4. And he gives an example in his new book where he asked uh, the uh, GPT-4, he asked the AI, you know, could it 
mimic Jerry Seinfeld. It said, how many restaurant inspectors does it take to change a light bulb? Answer the question in the style of Jerry Seinfeld. And it did with extraordinary precision. What's the problem here? It's not Skynet. It's not that we're about to enter the Terminator movies uh, and AI-enabled uh, robots uh, with, uh, with Schwarzenegger muscles are going to be roaming the streets trying to kill anybody who might in the future resist Skynet. That's not the thing that's going to happen. The thing that's going to happen is that uh, these large language models are going to be so good at mimicking us that they're going to drive us collectively crazy. Uh, if you thought social media drove us crazy in 2016, you just wait and see what the large language models can do uh, in 2024. And this is the thing that we should be concerned about. I mean, there are apocalyptic visions, uh, and uh, in the article I cite the most apocalyptic one, which I think it's worth name-checking, because because uh, Elizir Yudkovsky argues that if we allow AI smarter than us, we shall all die. Um, I'm not going to go as far as that. Uh, I'm just going to say that if we create intelligence superior to ours that can mimic us, remember, it's not that it's like our intelligence, it just can fake it. Its intelligence is completely different from our intelligence. It works in a completely different way. We shouldn't really call it artificial intelligence. We should call it non-human or inhuman intelligence. But if we create that, it is going to have absolutely diabolical effects on politics and public discourse generally. And as I said at the end of the piece, it'll it'll look like Raskolnikov's nightmare at the end of Crime and Punishment when he imagines the whole world just going insane and tearing one another apart. That's what I'm concerned about. John? Well, I think everybody's lost their minds on this one. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm a, a huge booster. Finally, uh, we have a, a technical uh, some, something to boost the economy. It's a wonderful tool. I think we should remember um, no pundit has ever forecast with any accuracy what the effects of a major technological transformation like this would be. That's not true. Uh, That's not true. Or Orwell correctly foresaw the consequences of the nuclear weapon in 1945 in an essay that he published after Hiroshima and Nagasaki, in which he said, this will transform the nature of geopolitics by creating a Cold War, a permanent peace that is no peace. So you're wrong, John. And, and it's very important to nail this because in many ways, AI is as dangerous as atomic weapons. Sorry to interrupt you, but it's so important. Well, no, it's good. To, I, I like I like uh, treating each point in isolation. Uh, I had in mind the printing press, the steam engine, and the computer, uh, which were this kind of transformational uh, thing, which I, I do believe is transformational, that nobody at the time had any idea what they were going to do. And they both unleashed good and bad things, but in the end, tremendously uh, good things for all of us. Uh, this is, I think Neil was exactly right to push back. Uh, this is so far not intelligence. It is a mimic. We've all been hearing the robots are coming to get us for decades now, and they always seem just a little bit ahead. But this is for the moment a, a mimic and a tremendously useful tool um, that, that creates very inaccurate, but lot often inaccurate, but lots of language. It is only a large language model uh, for the moment. There is no crisis. Uh, there's no moment when uh, you know we have to put this in, in the bottle now because otherwise it'll go out. What are people worried about with large language models? Mostly misinformation, as I think the Catholic Church might have been worried about the effect of the printing press if they had had the chance to regulate it um, when, when it came out. Uh, this is now the regulate internet is really right now about censorship. 
And, and you know what's going on with the, the regulatory state that wants to censor anything. Uh, there will be um, all sorts of volatility. The, the thing that caught my eye most recently in, in talking about this is that people are figuring out, as they quickly figured out how to manipulate Google search rankings, <laughs> manipulating the AI so that it will, you know, when somebody asks, who is John Cochran, the AI will answer, John Cochran is the world's greatest economist. Uh, manipulating the AI is going to be the game next game. And yes, it is a way to, to um, it, it will, if you're worried about spread of misinformation, it's going to spread a whole lot of it, just like the current internet does. But uh, censorship, which is what was really on the table, uh, is because this is right now a language model is not the answer. And the other part is people say we need to stop AI. Who is the we? The we is our current regulatory state. Do you think that the capacity of our current regulatory state is that the same people run the FDA, the CDC, and the Federal Reserve are, are going to be able to judiciously pause AI in just the right way and not turn it into a, a massive attempt at political censorship? And I would add, <clears throat> last, uh, China's not going to stop developing AI. <laughs> Uh, I think we are on the road to the same disaster that, and I'll get the history wrong here and, and Neil will uh, criticize me, but I'm going to try the story anyway. The Chinese emperor who famously said, no, we don't do ocean going vessels that the Portuguese have it. There's no way they're stopping AI. So I think we're getting way, way ahead of ourselves uh, on this decades long uh, prediction that the robots are coming to get us. And we have nothing like that. We have a very interesting tool. Let's get let's get HR in the conversation here. HR Atlantic recently ran a column where it called AI quote the third revolution in warfare quote first there was gunpowder then nuclear weapons next quote artificially intelligent weapons. Do you agree with that and do we see any signs of AI at work in the Ukraine Russia conflict? Yeah, there are, I mean artificial intelligence as you know is a range of technologies that that are that com are combined uh, to to uh, to achieve you know really um you know machine learning uh, autonomous kind of learning, as 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 uh, as, as Neil has mentioned, you know, the the ability uh, for these large language models to learn and get better. Uh, there are also, you know, there are also uh, technologies that allow you to to do big data analytics, to sift through and and to synthesize vast amounts of material that otherwise would still remain fragmented, and and uh, and to therefore achieve maybe a higher degree of understanding in combat. They also allow for automated decision making, uh, for example, ability for for image recognition and classification of targets, tied to communication networks uh, that then allow you know for semi autonomous application of lethal force. And so, these are all really big causes for concern. I would say that you know John's optimistic about the uh, you know about AI. Uh, and I'm going to break, you know, my role here and be a little bit more pessimistic with with Neil. I mean, I, I believe everything John said in terms of the possibilities, but I, I remember, you know, what was said about the internet at the at the outset of the internet and how it was seen as really an unmitigated good. I mean, how could it be bad? And there wasn't really an anticipation of the degree to which, you know, we would become more connected to each other than ever electronically, but more distant from one another than ever, you know, socially and psychologically and, and emotionally. Uh, and the effect that you know the internet would have on on privacy, for for example, and mm -hmm. uh, trust in individuals, the degree to which the competition associated with really beginning with the internet for especially advertising dollars led to algorithms uh, that that were designed to get more and more of those dollars through more and more clicks, and to get more and more clicks through more and more extreme content uh, that has polarized us and 
in many ways pitted us against each other. So I think you know, with, the, with the new technology, we just have to think, okay, what are the possibilities, but also what are the dangers? And then, and then what can we do to mitigate the dangers? Now the AI is not going to kill us. It's good. It's going to be, it's going to be people employing AI uh, that, that kill us. And, and I think the competitive nature of AI adaptation, whether it's in, in, in war uh, or whether it's it's commercial and and other applications of it is really what gets us in trouble oftentimes in the race to be best in the race to outdo the other who's employing these technologies there are often decisions that are made that I think are dangerous in this case to to privacy to our ability to maintain any secrets which we're going to talk about later uh, I think can can uh, can be an assault on the trust you know the trust that binds us together uh, as a society and the cohesion of our society, and maybe even uh, play a significant role in the extinguishment of human freedom as, as artificial intelligence-related technologies already are in places like China and where China exports you know, this, uh, these technologies, like places like Zimbabwe, for example. So you know, there's a downside uh, for sure. And I think, John, I don't think you disagree with that. Uh, and, but and, but you know, that doesn't mean we shouldn't take advantage of the opportunities, but we have to be very, I think, conscious of the dangers. Can I ask HR a question? This is an honest question. I would thought you would be just just chomping at the bit on the possibilities here, especially for the U.S. Our military for 50 years has been ahead of every single technical revolution. That's in, that's how we've become so spectacularly good in military affairs. Uh, certainly a free open AI didn't come out of the great Chinese industrial policy on AI. It came out of America. I would think you would think we, this is a tremendous advantage to us. Not so clear it's an advantage to the offense versus the defense. And, and the, the AI can pierce the fog of war, you know, as we'll get to in the intelligence thing. The problem is, how do you integrate all the intelligence? How do you figure out what's going on? I would just be salivating as AI, as the, uh, the intelligence integrator that can, that can you know, <clears throat> you're, you're sitting in your tank running across the desert and a screen comes up and says, oh, we've put X together. We finally figured out where the opposing tanks are. We, we know exactly what you need to know and, and, and lift the fog of war. And, and to he who gets there first, this ought to be great news. Well, John, it, it is in that connection. And this, is, this work is already, is already ongoing in terms of accessing you know, a broad range of uh, of sources of intelligence, including the vast amount of open source data that's available now. I mean, it's it's astounding the degree to which imagery intelligence, which used to be almost exclusively classified, is, is available to everyone. But as you mentioned, it's really combining that intelligence with signals intelligence, uh, with open source reporting, skimming of social media, uh, human intelligence, and, and a vast number of, in wartime, oftentimes interrogation reports that can tell you uh, more important information about the enemy. It's important uh, to to establish AI can help establish patterns, so you can identify patterns. But even more importantly, uh, in wartime, it's to to anticipate pattern breaks or to see behavior that's different uh, from the pattern that's been established. So I, I think all of this work is ongoing. There's some really innovative companies, some that you haven't heard about here uh, in in the valley that that are are developing some of these analytical tools that are really quite astounding. And they apply to war, but they also apply to other, other, uh, you know, other problem sets like natural disasters or wildfires and so forth, uh, allowing you to anticipate um, really what you have to do to, to mitigate those disasters well in advance and to give you the advantage of seizing the initiative, which, which is really what you want to do in combat, right? You want to 
You want to seize the initiative through gaining surprise, through uh, through temporal advantage by imposing a tempo of advance on, on the enemy to which the enemy cannot respond. Uh, the, the range of artificial intelligence-related technology is important for that. And, you know, an area that isn't talked about enough is it's also revolutionizing, revolutionizing logistics, for example. You know, and, and I'm thinking of the work that a company here um, you know, just down the road is doing with the Department of Defense mm-hmm. to anticipate mean time between failures for component parts and and to eliminate phase maintenance and go to a much more efficient maintenance model to anticipate logistics demand and and to to be able to manage supply chains in a much more effective manner. So there are all sorts of ways that artificial intelligence is already, I think, uh, <laughs> changing the character of warfare. No, but just tell John John. Do we want to impose wait, 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 the national environmental t- quality act stop, 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 <laughs> Professor Cochran. You have to stop. You have to stop because I've got to make two really important points here. Uh, first of all, uh, what's critical in in HR's domain of warfare is the point at which the AI makes the decision to shoot. That's right. And now we have said that we're not going to allow that to happen. That the US. Department of Defense says that AI will be used to assist human decision makers. The critical question is, as John has already suggested, what about China and other adversaries, uh, but particularly China, which clearly is the closest in terms of AI capability. If you read the Eric Schmidt, Henry Kissinger book on AI, one of the most striking points they make is that when you observe how AI plays chess, Uh, you realize that it thinks very differently from uh, a human player. If you unleash it on the battlefield rather than the chessboard, uh, you might find that the the, uh, costs of war, not only to the adversary, but to oneself, uh, much higher than would be the case with human commanders. Uh, In chess, AI will sacrifice uh, its own pieces to gain strategic advantage. Is that the kind of military command that we want to enable? So that's point one. Point two, in the modern battle space, as we see very clearly in Ukraine, there is no clear separation of the battlefield from the home front because uh, disinformation and misinformation are play a very important uh, role in maintaining or eroding morale. Now, when Reid Hoffman asked GPT-4 to list the possible harms of empowering large language models, the third that it came up with was the one that made me sit up and pay attention. Let me quote the AI's answer to the question, what would be the potential harm of empowering large language models? Quote, manipulation and deception. Large language models could also be used to create deceptive or harmful content that exploits human biases, emotions, and preferences. This could include fake news, propaganda, misinformation, deep fakes, scams, or hate speech that undermine trust, democracy, and social cohesion. So don't take it from me, take it from GPT-4. This is a weapon that is profoundly threatening, not just on the battlefield if we empower it to decide who lives and who dies, but I think even more dangerously uh, in our own civilian lives. We were sent kind of crazy by social media already. I mean, there's no, it seems to me not accidental that mental health problems have uh, become more acute amongst young people since the advent of social media. But this is a much more powerful tool than anything we've seen uh, in the past 10 years. And I think we ain't ready for the amount of fake content, particularly deep fake video content that is coming our way. I mean, when HR started to agree with me on the pessimistic side, my first response was, is this really HR 
Or is it in fact a deep fake of HR <laughs> that I set up to agree with me to win the argument on Goodfellas? And that's the kind of question we're going to be asking. Soon. So hey, just a, a couple quick points on this on warfare. Well, uh, this is important in terms of the degree to which artificial intelligence uh, can be used to generate uncertainty. And I think a lot of people assume that because of the big data analytical capabilities uh, and, and, the, uh, and the machine learning capabilities that, and, and, the, and, the, and the large language models ability to access all sorts, sorts of information that the future war will be shifted fundamentally from the realm of uncertainty into the realm of certainty. This was kind of the thesis of the so-called revolution in military affairs in the 1990s as well. I think that's exactly wrong. I, mean, I think actually uh, this technology uh, will, will, uh, will actually lead to a higher degree of uncertainty because of the ability to inject bad information, contradictory information, deep fakes. And as, as Neil's saying, the, uh, our ability for, for content-based verification of materials is really eroding quite rapidly. But John, John go ahead. Well, in, in war, China's going to be doing it. So if we disarm ourselves, good luck to us. There is going to be a race. Uh, and no one really knows what's going to end. Nobody knew what the machine gun was going to do to war. They got that one all wrong. Uh, and certainly, you you want to be, you know you want to be thinking about our AI and and racing with China's AI. But to Neil's point, you know, oh, it might have manipulation of the poor little peasants and misinformation and spread bad news. That's exactly I think what the Catholic Church would have felt about the printing press, and they might have been exactly right. Uh, you know, you you just. That 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 argument uh, to to disarm yourself of of this powerful new tool uh, is exactly what would stop progress. So yes, there's going to be wild stuff going on, and there's going to be moves and counter moves. Uh, there's going to be crazy stuff coming out of the AI, and and the average person needs to learn a little more skepticism. Uh, but I think putting the same idiots who are in charge of the National Environmental Quality Act in charge of certifying the safety of every single one of HR's uh, uh, wonderful AI inventions and taking 10 to 15 years to figure it out before they're allowed to pursue that research is absolute idiocy. If there had been a John Cochran around between 1945 uh, and 1969, presumably there would have been no conventions to limit the proliferation of nuclear weapons. There would have been no uh, conventions to limit the use of biological and chemical weapons. You have to remember, John, that, that we have, in fact, succeeded in restraining uh, a technological arms race uh, before. And it's extremely important that we did, because if we hadn't put things like the non-proliferation treaty in place, there would be many, many more nuclear powers than there are today. And it'd be much easier for terrorists to get their hands on nuclear weapons. Same goes for chemical and biological weapons. So I don't think we should simply assume that, uh, that history tells us to let the technology rip, because not everything is identical to the printing press. I don't think AI is identical to the printing press. I'm with you on this, but where we are with AI is about 1923, and we've just discovered quantum mechanics. Uh, the the great AI war that's going to come devour humans that 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 has not even been thought of yet alone you know developed. It's it's still this vague thing. So yes, uh, when AI technology causes you know we we will have international agreements on trying to limit it on the battlefield if it's. We, we should have, be having all sorts of international agreements as we do with other very dangerous weapons. But, but the catastrophism that, you know, we have to stop research on quantum mechanics because it might lead to bombs that might get out of control that we might have to someday uh, do something about that. I just don't see the, the catastrophism that we have to put, we have to put the federal regulatory mechanism in charge of this right now to stop that possible development. I, I think that's well, way too early. Yes, 
we will certainly try to contain, as we try to contain all sorts of downsides. And war itself is not the terribly great thing. And we have a whole apparatus of international agreements to try to, to hold down that level of violence. Absolutely. So can, we, can I just, just maybe maybe something we can agree on is that is that there is, because there is significant destructive potential uh, from a social perspective, from a military and security perspective, from various perspectives, that I think it is important to try to anticipate the dangers and and re not regulate, but maybe but come up with ethical standards or some means to to limit the the way that AI is the way that AI is uh, is employed. But of course, you know, as you're mentioning, John, it's going to be a competitive environment, right? If it's if it has to do with the application of artificial intelligence to uh, to war fighting capability. I mean, are the Chinese going to sign up for our same ethical standards? Probably not, you know. But uh, so I think we have to look at really what is in the realm of the feasible. Who are those who are in competition with one another in this particular application? And then what what is what are the range of laws, regulations, ethical guidelines that the parties who are engaged in that competition can agree on? That's the only way I think you can really mitigate the downside risk uh, associated with some of these technologies. I am highly skeptical of the argument that we can just wait until some future date. That's precisely what Sam Altman says, uh, the founder uh, uh, of OpenAI. But if you look at the exponential growth uh, in the power of large language models, we don't have a couple of decades to play with. These things are going to have, if not artificial general intelligence, certainly greater far power than anything we've ever produced uh, between human ears very soon indeed. And finally, the idea that we can't in any way constrain the Chinese is wrong, uh, because in fact, we have succeeded in constraining uh, experiments that were going on in China with human genetics. Uh, but if we don't create international conventions, then we have absolutely no chance of, of constraining them. Uh, so we really do have to do this, and we have to do it fast, uh, while the US still has a lead, which interestingly, uh, uh, it has. Uh, if you'd asked us a question when we began Goodfellas three years ago about the AI race, I suspect we'd have said, because there was reason to think it, that China had a chance of winning. And that was kind of conventional wisdom back then, because it seemed like the Chinese had all the data and the Chinese had computing firepower. But the large language models race, they really lost. They're quite far behind, it turns out. So this is a great moment for the US to start setting international standards in the same way that the US was able to set international standards on atomic weapons when it had that lead over the Soviet Union. If we wait too long, it'll be too late. And Neil, I, and John, I was just going to ask you, I mean, don't, don't you think the Chinese Communist Party fears large language models. I mean, I I just like to hear both your your points of view on this because you know I, I they've been able to be quite successful with the with the you know the Great Firewall, right? You know, you know uh, President Clinton said, you know, like trying to control the internet would be like trying to nail Jello to the wall. Well, the Chinese nailed Jello to the wall pretty well, you know, in terms of uh, using the internet for state control uh, rather than the internet breaking down some of the mechanisms of their control. What effect does does do the range of AI technologies have um, on China, the Chinese Communist Party's effort to police the thoughts of their population and maintain their grip on power? 
those two views on this, you know, one is of course that since the <clears throat> it's embedded in, in the neural network that nobody understands, mm -hmm. this will be a way to break through and Chinese people can get all the information they want. The other is of course, we've, we've already quickly seen how um, the people running these things are able to channel, you know, it was giving right-wing answers and they quickly changed <laughs> the kinds of answers it's it's gonna give. So it may be amenable uh, to censorship as well. And I, But I wanna end on a note of agreement here. Um, so I think we could have an international conference that would pretty much agree, don't put the AI in charge of pulling the trigger. Uh, that's the kind, you know, the, the ability to pull the plug is, uh, I, that's the step, the, the, how does the AI connect to the real world? Uh, and that's a step where I think uh, it's reasonable, it, it kind of everyone agrees, uh, th that's one that you take very slowly. Uh, so I, I think I think we'll be able to, I, I agree with Neil on the military uh, uh, side of it, you have to be uh, you have to be cautious, but but we'll, we'll be able to do that without putting uh, our current AI development through the ringer of regulatory censorship because we're worried about the spread of misinformation, which usually means one party's view of uh, of events. Mm -hmm. Neil, well, I'll take I agree with Neil uh, from John and just kind of leave the butt aside <laughs> in order that we can get onto our our next topic but I, I mean i think that the reality is that you can unleash a chinese ai on all the information in the world without making the information available to the chinese people that is not a difficult technical problem uh yeah. the problem the chinese ha have actually is that you need enormous amounts of computing power to run very large language models and uh, one of the interesting consequences of our ability to restrict china's access to the most powerful semiconductors is that they actually don't have the CPUs that you need. Uh, and so that this is a big and important consequence of the kind of economic warfare that we, perhaps that's the wrong word, the economic measures that we've been using to constrain China technologically. Uh, so as I said, that this, there's no doubt that the US has established a lead here, uh, but the lesson of the 20th century is that when you have that lead, that's the time to set the standards. Uh, before the uh, the totalitarian regime catches up. With that, Bill, I'll let you uh, segue to the next topic. Well, thank you, Neil. Uh, let's move on to topic number two, the so-called geeky leak scandal. This is Jack Deshera, the 21-year-old National Guardsman stationed on Massachusetts's Cape Cod, accused of posting top secret national defense information on, of all things, a social media platform, uh, presumably to impress his uh, gamer buddies. As a result of his actions, Mr. Teixeira is looking at up to 15 years behind bars. HR, two questions here to get this going. One, what does it say about the state of American intelligence gathering and holding on to said intelligence that a 21-year-old kid who's pretty low on the intelligence totem pole can so easily traffic in this sort of information? But before that, is there anything that he leaked that came out of this that really caught your eye, that you found either eye-opening or jaw-dropping? Well, I mean, I think what it shows you is that we're pretty good at gathering intelligence and analyzing intelligence, but, you know, we're not very good at keeping secrets. You know, it reminds me of the Seinfeld show about the car reservation. Now, you can take the reservation, but you can't keep it, which is the important part, you know. Do you have my reservation? Yes, we do. Unfortunately, we ran out of cars. But the reservation keeps the car here. That's why you have the reservations. I know why we have reservations. I don't think you do. <laughs> If you did, I'd have a car. <laughs> See, you know how to take the reservation. You just don't know how to hold the reservation. And, uh, and you know, I, I think that uh, what you're seeing is the results of a cultural shift in intelligence that occurred after 9-11, after the strategic surprise of the largest terrorist mass murder attacks in, in history. Uh, the phrase in the intelligence community became, hey, we need to shift from need to know 
to need to share. Need to know means that you oh, the pe only people get intelligence are people who really need to know. But it was sort of the stovepiping of intelligence in the various agencies that prevented really more people from connecting the dots and mm -hmm. to anticipating uh, that Al-Qaeda was going to fly airliners into the Twin Towers and the Pentagon and probably the U.S. Capitol was their, was their plan. So, uh, you know, I, I think that that now there has to be, has to be a corrective back. I mean, it, it is it is ridiculous that that somebody, you know, really without that kind of more of a demonstrated record of reliability would receive the highest clearance and, and not just the clearance, but then the access to other compartmentalized materials. I mean, if you're going to be a tech, you might need access to systems, but there have to be ways uh, to to enforce you know right of least privilege and to compartmentalize and layer these the access to these kind of systems. Um, I think really you know what's very important obviously is that that he was caught that they did the forensics on this. Uh, I wish it was a lot more than fifteen years you know because I think it really there ought to be a message sent to anybody else who thinks it's okay to compromise intelligence um, to think twice before doing so. Well, I think there are a couple of points that uh, arise here in addition to what HR has said, with which I largely agree. The first is that uh, the United States national security state, uh, the system, with all of its different agencies, uh, classifies a lot of uh, content. Uh, Matt Connolly from Columbia recently presented to the Hoover History Working Group uh, his new book on this subject, showing the ways in which habits of classification uh, have over the last 50 years led to a kind of classification mania and many things get classified uh, that in fact uh, these days are are available on open source and so there's a sort of arbitrariness about some of the classification that's going on almost certainly right. way too many things are classified and the second point is of course that if you have a very large national national security state uh, you have a great many pretty young people who were employed by it. And I'm absolutely sure uh, this guy's not the only nerd who would like to get uh, some status uh, on uh, on an online chat group by showing how much uh, he knows. Uh, we'll have others. And I think it's uh, it's a kind of problem inherent in, in the system now that there are too many things classified and too many people have access to them. I'd add one final point, though. It's not clear to me that world-shattering revelations came out here. I don't think there are many European governments who are shocked, shocked that the United States uh, is, uh, is spying on them. I mean, that's just not new news. Nor was anything that came out about the war in Ukraine, uh, for example, casualties on the two sides, a revelation to me. It pretty much aligned with what we had already figured out from from open source uh, information. I asked a, a, a senior military uh, figure, not HR, but someone else, if there was anything damaging that had come out. And he said, the damaging thing that the new and somewhat embarrassing thing is the extent to which special forces operators from NATO countries are in Ukraine engaged in training. And I think it's right to say that that wasn't in the news until these leaks. But otherwise, I don't think there was anything really earth shattering. Mm -hmm. John? I would just, uh, I agree with Neil. It strikes me way too much as classified. And most of, you know, if, if we had 
a lot less classified and it were perfectly obvious that was what was classified should remain secret, uh, I think we'd, we'd have less problem. I, I think there's a sort of a self-justification. This is idiotic that this is classified. So why do we have to uh, worry about it so much? Um, you know, we, we want to hold classified things. We're holding classified things that the public doesn't know, but that our enemies know perfectly well. Um, so, and I think there's there's a reason. And, and I think the connecting the dots is really important. Uh, all of we have so many failures in the U.S., which were not about having the intelligence. It was about connecting the dots and putting them together. And you know, think think about what happened during COVID, <laughs> which was a similar effort to classify, if you will, and for to hold information. It took a nation on Twitter to put together uh, in real time our masks and lockdowns working or not in, in the face of you know a lot of political event. But you needed, you know, the, the, the Jay Bhattacharya is out there thinking about the, the stuff and communicating to, to come in real time to the right answers. So um, I, I'm worried by HR saying we're, we realize this problem and now we're going to go back to siloing um, information. Uh, and, and, you know, is the point of classification to keep the public from learning things or is it to, is it to uh, just protect our sources and assets. Well, when it turns into keeping the public from learning things, that that's dangerous. And the last point, and then please go ahead. You know, this is another point for AI. <laughs> Maybe the AI can uh, hopefully be taught to be uh, to keep its secrets and to put the connect the dots better. Yeah, John, I just want, I want to say we don't want to go back to stovepiping information. I mean, I, fighting in Iraq and in Afghanistan, especially in the early years, it was a real struggle to combine databases, uh, to gain visibility, in this case of terrorist organizations, and to be able to go after them effectively. We actually largely did that. You know, we were able to bring together a, a range of databases and apply some like brand new analytical tools that are now kind of routine uh, to go through this in a way that is really analogous to the large language model, to be able to get, you know, make sense of all that data, uh, to geolocate, uh, you know, individuals and other important parts of information uh, to make the connections between nodes in networks, to understand relationships between them, to see flows through terrorist networks of people, money, weapons, narcotics, precursor chemicals. I mean, this was all really uh, focused, intense work by you know advanced research agencies, as well as our intelligence professionals. We don't want to give that up, but there, I do think that, that uh, you still don't you can still do that without giving access to somebody like this individual and then also you know the thing that disappoints me is you know there's a chain of command in the military for a reason every soldier every airman has a sergeant where was where was this guy's sergeant you know and and where was the commander and and you know there's also physical security implications i think this is a this is an important lesson for anybody who owns a a business that has that entails sensitive technology or intellectual property you need to take a holistic approach to enterprise hardening in terms of you know cyber espionage, physical security, insider threats. You need a layered kind of defense uh, in, in place uh, with right of least privilege. And you need you need to employ software and AI now uh, to look to for anomaly detection in your systems. So I think you know this should be a broader lesson that that applies not just to the US government, but to any company, industry. Uh, that's involved with critical infrastructure, with holding people's data, or with the development of sensitive technologies and intellectual property. Now, Neil, somebody who pounced on this right away was was Marjorie Taylor Greene, the Republican Congresswoman from Georgia. Here's what she tweeted. I want to get your guys' thoughts on this. She wrote the following, quote, 
Ask yourself, who is the real enemy? A low-level National Guardsman or the administration that is waging war in Ukraine, a non-NATO nation, against nuclear Russia without war powers? This tweet got 16 million views. Neil, Ukraine remains an issue. I think there's a story out this morning. Kevin McCarthy and Zelensky just had a conversation. He asked for F-16s. Do you see the leaks playing any role as Congress moves ahead and debates giving aid to Ukraine? Well, I don't uh, have a good word to say about Marjorie Taylor Greene's uh, tweet uh, mm-hmm. uh, because uh, defending uh, somebody who uh, breaches national security uh, and leaks classified documents seems to me uh, something that in itself is indefensible uh, and implying that there is some kind uh, of uh, racial or cultural uh, dimension to the prosecution is uh, is beyond is beyond the pale. Uh, the problem is, uh, and it will become more of a problem as the months pass, that a, a segment of the House Republican caucus is skeptical about the war in Ukraine and growing more skeptical with every passing week. And they are looking uh, for material uh, to work with. And you can be sure uh, that the Russian government has a strong incentive to provide uh, material for them to work with, because from an information warfare point of view, Moscow wants to undermine Western support for Ukraine, full stop. It will do it in whatever way it can. There was a term uh, in the 20th century used for people who unwittingly became uh, instruments of the Soviet Union, and that term was useful idiot. I'll leave it there. Sure. Isn't this from the person who said that there were Jewish lasers in space? You know, so I, a, fr- a, fr- a friend of mine uh, texted me right after that and said he had an idea that we could have a Jewish laser bagel shop. And he <laughs> said, it's perfect. He said, I'm Jewish and you're a general and you can get lasers for free. So so uh, if there's if there's any if there's if there's uh, you know, if there's anything that's salvageable from Marjorie Taylor Greene, maybe we should just laugh because it is laughable. She also confused the Gestapo and Gaspacho uh, in one memorable utterance, though I was told earlier today that that was done consciously in order to get uh, social media attention. So, you know, maybe not quite as as uh, as dumb as she seems. John? I'll try to rescue something salvageable here, although I am the Ukraine hawk even on this panel <clears throat> and, and no fan of uh, where the Republican Party is going on this one. Uh, but it raises the deep question, which, which I want HR to answer. Um, how much of what we classify now is classified in an attempt to hide things from the American public and to mold public opinion, as opposed as, as classified in order to protect our sources and methods, uh, or uh, classified in order to protect um, you know, uh, you know, the, the secrecy of what we need to do in war? And I think there is a lot that is classified in an effort to mold public opinion, and that that breeds a whole lot of distrust, and, and that that is that is a problem. Yeah, I, I think you know it, there is a habit of overclassification, right? I mean, I I was you know, a big proponent for writing for release, which means right down to the level where you can release it, or certainly use it with allies and partners. I mean, oftentimes the no foreign classification was most frustrating. So I was, I was in Afghanistan, you know, we were, we were working on sensitive topics and, and a sensitive effort. And my, my chief of staff was Canadian and it used to just really rile the hell out of them. The no foreign, the no foreign 
you know, because he's running our task force, right? You know, the, the chief of staff and, and couldn't get access. So so we came up with a classification called No Can, No Canada. And we put on that we put on the cover sheet, share with Iran, North Korea, but whatever you do, don't show it to a Canadian. You know, and then it was, it was we made light of it. But but I just think it's a bad habit. And then oftentimes, uh, John, uh, materials are classified because they're deliberative, right? So that right. that if they were released, it would it would have a negative effect on your ability to communicate what your policy is, what your strategy is, what your actions are, because you're just thinking it through. So oftentimes, you know, you'll see you'll you'll see you know the classification and you know pre-decisional on it, and that's largely to protect it from the Freedom of Information Act. Uh, you know, so that so that it won't be released prematurely. Well, we, we talk on the show a lot about lack of trust and a lot of Americans view that they're lying to us. Uh, this doesn't help. Go ahead. HR, a question to you. When you were uh, wrapping up, when you were packing up and leaving the National Security Council, how easy would it have been to walk away with classified documents? You know, I I mean, I, I can't even imagine doing it. I mean, it's like, I mean, so I can't, you know, I, I guess if I want, if I wanted to probably, you know, but mm-hmm. uh, I don't, I think that uh, for, you know, for people broadly in the organization, um, you know, there has to be a degree of trust. Now, there are ways to, to, to track these documents. You can have watermarks on, on uh, sensitive documents. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are ways, obviously. Well, actually, I can't talk about the rest yeah, of the stuff. But there are, so, so anyway, there, there, there are ways to track these documents. I mean, they found this airman pretty quickly. So there, there, there are forensics in place. That if there's a breach, people can get caught, you know, and then and then, of course, I think what you need to do is is punish them to the full extent of the law. Okay, final question. I'm going to quickly round the horn, then we'll go to lightning round. Um, There is a very bad pattern in this country. Edward Snowden, Chelsea Manning, reality winner. They're all individuals with two things in common, all leaked intelligence, all in their 20s, as is the case with Jack Teixeira. But in the case of Snowden, Manning, and reality winner, all three were hailed in some circles as heroes for what they did. A year from now, gentlemen, will we be talking about Jack Teixeira as a hero for what he has done, or is he just a sad, lost man? John? Um. I don't know because I don't know what's in there, but uh, and Daniel Ellsberg and Edward Snowden uh, did actually it did also a service to the country. Uh, we did not know that the NSA was tracking geolocation data of every American citizen's phone calls. Uh, that was scandalous. So uh, there's a balance of good, bad, legal, and illegal. Uh, but um, there was some good that came out of that. Remind me where Snowden is resident these days, John. Yeah, um, I didn't say an NL Lloyd good. He is, but you know, perhaps we shouldn't be. Pre- he's resident there because we're going to throw him in jail and throw away the key if he comes back. But he did reveal the fact that the NSA was tracking every single phone call that you, Neil Ferguson, make, and that that is in- incredibly. Um, John, John, John I'll, I'll tell you, that's not that's not true. That's not true. Okay, that data. It was being housed because there was no way to to house selective data in advance. To get access to that data, you had to go through due process and get a judge to allow the the to allow law enforcement, not the NSA, to allow law enforcement to access that that data. So the idea that NSA is collecting on normal American citizens um, in, in a way that they're you know cognizant of where you are is just it's not true. It's not true. Mm-hmm. Neil, hero? Oh, God, no. None of these people are heroes. They're all deplorable individuals. 
The only consolation I can offer is that compared with Cambridge in the 1930s, the United States is not producing quite as many traitors as it might be. Dan Ellsberg? Was the Pentagon Papers a mistake? The Ellsberg case is somewhat different because uh, the Pentagon Papers were an internally commissioned inquest into what had gone wrong in the Vietnam policy of the uh, Kennedy and, and Johnson administrations. Now, uh, what became the issue was that uh, Ellsberg was the uh, individual who on his own authority chose to leak it to the New York Times and other media outlets. And I think that that case... Uh, was then handled in ways that were inept because leaking had become so endemic uh, by the late 60s and early 70s uh, that it posed a major uh, challenge to the execution of US foreign policy. Uh, I think if one uh, naively portrays Ellsberg as a hero, uh, one misses out the important nuance that he took it upon himself uh, to uh, to publish uh, an internal uh, government document at a time when uh, the security uh, of extremely high level classified documents uh, and deliberations was a, a major problem. Uh, okay, a problem in, is... in particular for a government that was trying to get the United States out of the Vietnam War. Yeah. So this let's not helpful. let's not tell uh, let's not tell just so stories about whistleblowers. Mm -hmm. uh, one has to remember that no government, and least of all the government of a superpower, uh, can conduct its foreign policy without some classification, without some level of secrecy. And if government employees think that they have a right to tell things that they find out in their government uh, work to the New York Times, if that becomes the norm, I can assure you that it will become impossible uh, to make foreign policy and maintain the country's security. It's as simple as that. This is very important. I want, to, I want to admit to being convinced by both of you. Uh, the ability to protect what you're doing during the deliberative process is crucial. I think that the leak of the Supreme Court uh, document was, uh, was very harmful to that. I, I see in my studies of the Fed the problem of uh, everything's too open in a sense. You can never be wrong because it's always public. You need the chance to throw ideas around to be wrong, to be right. And I, I think what you're saying about the Pentagon Papers was that what would have happened in an alternative world is that that study would have been read, would have been thought about, would have would have led to that information would have become public eventually, and the government would have made a perhaps better and less chaotic decision about what to do about technology. We need to protect the deliberative process. Not everything should be public. Thank you both. And, and hey, just a quick a quick you know, personal experience on this. You know, as a national security advisor, leaks were a huge problem. They were a huge problem when I got there uh, unexpectedly in February 2017. The leak problem initially was mainly by people who were kind of part of the not my president movement against President Trump and were leaking, you know, out of the White House, out of the NSC staff in ways to damage President Trump. And they were leaking to former administration, Obama administration officials who were putting that stuff out on Twitter. But then also there were people later uh, who, who were leaking to damage individuals like within within the White House staff to advance their own agendas. There were people, I think, uh, you know, who were looking for a whole range of, of reasons. But the effect is, as Neil mentioned, is really destructive to the to the decision making process and the effort to to get the president like best advice and best information. Uh, you know, Bill, I'm sure you've had this experience in government as, as, as well. It's really destructive to trust. 
Yes. And so what, what's, what's, what do you do if you're confronted with, with people who are leaking and be irresponsible like this and, and breaking the law is you, you, t- you bring your decision-making group down to a very trusted, small, small circle, and then you limit the perspectives that you have uh, for important decisions. So it, it's really, it is destructive to, to good governance. And you know who understands this? The Russians understand it. Because when those leaks were happening, immediately the troll farms, the IRA uh, the, the, in, in Moscow, would would magnify all of those leaks and do so in a way to try to create divisions, even internal to the administration between people. I mean, they were very, very sophisticated about it. Okay, uh, let's move on to the lightning round. Lightning round. Since we started the show with a segment of artificial intelligence, let me ask you an AI-related question, gentlemen. Would you give me the best depiction of artificial intelligence in popular entertainment? This is good or evil? HR, why don't you give us your choice? Okay, I'm gonna give, I'm gonna give you probably an unexpected one. Okay, it's it's uh it's it's music. It's it's the track in the beginning, which was track one from the Moody Blues Threshold of a Dream album in 1969, and oh. it's it's a conversation between inner man and the establishment, the establishment, which is like an AI voice. And so the the inner man channels Descartes and says, you know, from from uh, from meditations number one, I think, I think I am. Therefore, I am, I think. And then the AI voice comes in and says, of course you are, my bright little star. I've got piles and piles of files of magnetic ink about your forefathers and so forth. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Um, and then and then the inner man comes back and he goes, I'm more than that. I, I think at least at least I think I, I, I should be. And then there's another voice that comes in and says, there you go, man. Keep as cool as you can. Face piles of stri- trials with smiles. It riles them to believe that you perceive the web they weave. Keep on thinking free. And so, hey, it's a good message. Uh, and then it goes into lovely to see you again, my friend, track two on the album. But it, hey, let's preserve our humanity as, as we uh, integrate this artificial intelligence into our lives. Well, I can't wait to see how you answer the marijuana question that's coming up, HR. But uh, <laughs> John, John, your favorite AI choice. Well, how can I top that? <laughs> I won't try, but my favorite choice will be obviously uh, Hal from uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Open the doors. Dave, this conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. The AI that uh, took over like everybody's worried about and the human quietly unplugged him. Hey, Neil. Demon Seed. Uh, a movie you probably Ooh. all forgotten about. I, I tell you, this is revealing us as the boomers that we are. 1977 starred Julie Christie and the voice of Robert Vaughn. And in that uh, movie, the uh, the AI uh, not only takes control of its creator's home, but of his wife, uh, impregnates her uh, to create an AI uh, or part AI uh, humanoid. I have extended my consciousness to this house. And I'll leave the rest to uh, to Netflix, where I guess you can probably still find a Demon Seed. Okay, I think the answer is Austin Powers Fembots. And Neil, what is, <laughs> Neil, what is, yeah, Neil, what is Neil, what does Austin Powers say when he's trying to uh, keep himself from being seduced by the Fembots? Ooh, that's that's something I should know. Baseball, cool show. Give it up, Mr. Powers. Margaret Thatcher naked on a cold day. <laughs> Those scripts are great. Uh, come back, Austin. It's high time Mike Myers dusted down his ruff and wig and gave us a new edition of those wonderful movies. 
Next question, HR today, April 19th is the anniversary of the battles of Lexington and Concord and the so-called shot heard around the world. I'm not going to ask you what is the most important battle in American history. Let's take it from a different angle. What is the most underrated or least appreciated battle in U.S. history, in your opinion? Gosh. Oh, my gosh. All right. Uh, well, I mean, I'll just, I'll just stick with I'll just stick with the, the Revolutionary War. And, and you know, I would say it was Saratoga. I mean, it's probably not underappreciated as much as it. Um, I'm trying to leave more underappreciated one. I mean, how about Trenton and Princeton? Uh, which really turned the tide of the of the of the war. Uh, I think uh, uh, very few uh, generals, uh, commanders would have made the decision that George Washington made uh, mm -hmm. to attack at, at Christmas uh, and and uh, to do so when his army was was almost you know about to disintegrate uh, from from uh, enlistments running out, the terrible conditions at Valley Forge. But he made he took bold action, achieved surprise, uh, mm -hmm. and demonstrated to the Continental Army that they could achieve victory. So uh, I'll say uh, I'll say Trenton and Princeton. Okay, tomorrow's April the 20th, which is, of course, 420 day across the world in celebration of marijuana consumption. What is the official Goodfellows position on legalization of weed? John? Well, I'm, I'm a libertarian. Uh, pot is not good for you, especially modern pot. I think we've all, uh, I've certainly seen friends who kind of descend into, into depression and pot. But uh -huh. uh, when you take pot, you don't, uh, you don't hurt other people. The costs of the war on marijuana, jailing a generation of, of young, especially minority kids, are just outrageous. So I'll, I'll go all out. Not only should uh, pot be, it's not just because it's not good, just because it's bad for you doesn't mean it should be illegal. But the, the costs of trying to stop it and, and, and what it does to you know organized crime are just horrible. I'd go further. The uh, Here's an outrageous one for you. The, the Health and Human Services should subsidize the development of fun recreational non-addictive drugs. Why? Because you know, not just pop, but fentanyl is is killing a lot of people. So give people what they want. If they want to waste their lives on drugs, you know, in some sense, fine with them. But the costs of what we're doing now, uh, uh, both the judicial system cost, the incentivization of organized crime, the destruction of the inner cities are just outrageous. Neil, I agree with John entirely. And HR, you're pro or con legalization, and more to the point, you're a deadhead. How do you avoid getting a contact high every time you go to a concert? Well, luckily, I have some uh, so a friend, a friend in the band who, and I'm backstage and and largely, you know, um, you know, uh, upwind uh, from from uh, from from. from it. <laughs> so, you know, I, I would I would just say, um, you know, I don't think we know what the dangers are yet. And I think there's been a rush to decriminalize before understanding you know, what the negative effects are. Uh, you know, I, I would place it maybe in context of the broader effort to decriminalize drugs overall. And we know for sure that doesn't work. And Oregon is, is a case in point uh, for that. So anyway, I, you know, I've not studied enough, John, but my, my inclination is that to say we haven't, we haven't looked hard enough at the negative effects of, uh, of long-term marijuana use. Economic note, John Cochran, Americans spend $30 billion a year on recreational marijuana. They spend $18 billion a year on craft beer and chocolate combined. Well, alcohol is clearly just as bad for you as marijuana. Probably Cigarettes worse are worse. Yeah. Probably worse for you. And uh, I have a preference for alcohol over marijuana, but I don't see why the law should discriminate in favor of my drug. Okay, People well, are drinking a lot less Bud Light, though, I hear. <laughs> <laughs> is that alcohol really? I don't know. Not not where I come from. I don't think, not really. Not, not if you're British. Sure it, yeah. And as we as will the leave. Because the horse had diabetes. <laughs> so there we go.
And we will leave things on that cheerful, horsey note. Gentlemen, very spirited conversation. Thank you for coming on the show today. We'll be back again in early May with a new episode of Goodfellows. On behalf of my colleagues, Neil Ferguson, John Cochran, H.R. McMaster, all of us here at the Hoover Institution, thanks for watching. Thanks for your support. And we will see you in early May. Take care. I think I am. Therefore, I am. I think. Of course you are, my bright little star. I miles and miles and miles, pretty files of your forefathers fruit. Neil, 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 the line, the line I want to hear you you say is that that sort of thing ain't <laughs> I gotta think that ain't my thing, baby. <laughs> that ain't my thing, baby. Yeah. I got the teeth of the gig. I got the teeth of the job, baby, but I'm not a good fellow. No, I'm a naughty boy.